Hello, and welcome to Catholicism in the Car. My name is Parker Zerbal. Last time we were discussing the limits of knowledge, so it was the knowledge of history, and then the limits of the knowledge of of our knowledge of scripture, and then uh, the limits of our knowledge in general. Okay. And I had said that this whole discourse was brought upon by uh, a lot of what I've been doing, thinking about the papacy in Catholicism, and um, how it relates to uh, Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy. So what I find interesting, I think, is that Protestants will generally make arguments uh, against the papacy, um, and these arguments are based upon uh, scriptural analysis. Uh, the Orthodox, on the other hand, will make arguments against the papacy, but these are more, generally more historical arguments. And I find the Orthodox arguments stronger and more compelling, not because, not not mainly because I think history has less ambiguity than Scripture, um, which in a certain sense it does. But I say that because, well, it it seems like a better argument um, to make. Because, you know, within Christianity, you can get 5, 10, 15, 20, however many you want, different interpretations of virtually every verse in the scriptures. There are people who will say, oh, well, the Trinity is clearly, it, maybe it's not spelled out in scripture, but it's clearly there. Uh, so much so that, you know, it, it only took a few hundred years for the church fathers to really be able to define it in a, in a, in a way that's clear. Um, but, but, I mean, you go back and you think, how many heresies throughout Christian history that people have been basing themselves upon Scripture are non-Trinitarian? Um, or have a faulty uh, Trinitarian belief. Now, that, that's a little more understandable. But the non-Trinitarians in general, I mean, Arianism is a non-Trinitarian uh, belief. They believe that Jesus is more of a, a demigod than a um, than, than God and part of the Godhead. <clears throat> you have uh, in modern examples. Uh, Groups like the Seventh-day Adventists, the Mormons, um, the Unitarians, let's see, who else? I'm trying to think, I don't know. But there are very, very smart people in all of these groups. I mean, Arianism, from the, what would it have been, from the 300s until about the 900s, I mean, it was, it was a strong force within Christianity. 
Orthodox, the Orthodox Christians, the, the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox at the time, who, who were generally united, uh, there were points where they were completely outnumbered by the Arians. I think it's St. Athanasius, where it's, it's said of him that, uh, that Athanasius single-handedly pushed back the tide of the Arians because there was he was virtually the only the only bishop who was not Arian at the time. I, if my memory is serving me correctly, even the Pope at the time uh, espoused certain Arian views before he turned from them. Now I might be remembering that incorrectly, but. <laughs> Anyway, so there are these historical arguments against the papacy, there are scriptural arguments against the papacy, and I think that because of the limits of our knowledge of these certain things, I, I don't think they can ever really, they, they can be parts of evidence uh, that may convince someone, but if someone's really truly seeking a, an understanding of this issue, I think they have to kind of jump off the bandwagon of, of scripture and of history and just go straight to, I guess you could say, the common sense argument. Now, I've heard people say that this argument is not very plausible, that they don't, you know, and that's fine. I mean, this argument is probably not uh, not going to be. Con it, it's definitely it's not conclusive either. But I think it is a good retort. Now, there are historical um, arguments that can ma be made in return to the Orthodox, and there are scriptural arguments arguments that can be made in return to the Protestants. Um, I find many of of these, each, each of these individual arguments compelling. For example, the scriptural arguments, Matthew 16 comes to mind, Luke, uh, what is it, Luke 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus says to the apostles, while they're bickering among themselves about who's the greatest, he says, uh, and Simon, I will give you strength so that you may not turn, so that after you have turned back, you will lead your brethren. Um, and then Simon falls, and he, sin, he, he denies Jesus three times. After the resurrection, uh, Jesus, <clears throat> um, I think this is the last chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus uh, is on the beach, and, and the, the apostles are fishing, um, and they see him, and they, uh, they jump out of the water. John, John, what is it? John jumps out of the water and swims to shore to greet Jesus. And Peter is left in the boat, and he hauls in this giant catch of fish, which which Jesus again had told them a place to lower their nets. He hauls in this giant catch of fish, and Jesus and they, they they make they make some fish to eat. Jesus eats it, which is an interesting thing because it means that in our resurrected bodies we will be able to eat. Um, And Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. 
reconciliation for the first time, Vader denied him. And then he does it again, and he does it again. Three points of reconciliation for Peter, for his, uh, and it's reconciliation for his denial of Jesus. And then Jesus says, Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter says something like, yes, Lord, I will. So it's, it's as though Jesus is giving Peter particularly the, the office of shepherd in a special way. And this, combined with the evidence from Matthew 16, um, which is the, the verse uh, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, um, names him Peter, or Kephas. I think, and then, and then if you tie this all into Isaiah 54, or is it Isaiah 22, where um, it talks about the, basically the viceroy of the kingdom who is given the keys and the king's away. Anyway, I, I think that, that an argument from basically political philosophy is a very good one. That, that really you can't you cannot run a large organization of people with a purely oligarchic or a democratic model. There has to be someone at the head. You think uh, in the United States. The United States has a president at the head who, who has veto power the end of the day how it's used it's used very um, rarely well maybe not now but it was ideally supposed to be used rarely same with the Pope's gift of infallibility it's supposed to be used rarely most things are supposed to be um, taken into consideration via councils or synods or particularly local councils. Mm-hmm. The individual bishops who are, you, know, you could say, akin to a governor are uh, have full jurisdiction in their own diocese, just like a governor has, or at least should have full jurisdiction in his state. Um, you know, pe- people say that the church is a monarchy, and in a certain sense, yes, that's true. Um, but it's it's very close to a parliamentary monarchy. Um, it's just that the Pope has the, his final court of appeals on everything. Um, you think about a country like Russia, who, for all intents and purposes, has an oligarchy. I mean, this could be argued about America, too. But I don't really know of any other countries right now who have oligarchies. <laughs> Probably because they don't work. Um... But even there, uh, Vladimir Putin is the head, and he makes all the decisions. And, you know, they have a, what would you say, maybe a de facto oligarchy, whereas it's a de jure democracy. Um, even there, they, they can't even function as, a, as, a, as an oligarchy. I mean, there, there are no true oligarchies or democracies in the world. Think about that. There are no true oligarchies or democracies in the world. 
basically because they're impossible to keep going. Uh, democracy will eventually devolve into chaos, which will eventually devolve. Someone will rise up and you will get a totalitarian state. I mean, this is just, this is just what happens. And then oligarchies eventually devolve. They either break down into anarchy or they, or one of the oligarchs rises up and becomes a de facto or dictator. You just, there's, there's no, there's a reason why monarchy was the, the main form of governance for the vast majority of human history until, until 200 years ago. Um, and the democracies we do have going on are not true democracies. They're generally a combination of democracy, republic, and monarchy. Um, and, you know, and that, and that seems to be a pretty good model. But, I mean, most medieval monarchies were also not, like, it's not like there was just the king and he, he made all these decisions totally by himself. No. There, in Britain, there's, a, there's been a parliament for, gosh, what, 700 years? Uh, most other monarchies in Europe had some sort of a states general or something of that nature where people would come together and be able to uh, be represented and, and make some real decisions within the, within the monarchy because they, they understood that Dictatorship is not is not something that lasts very long uh, because people will eventually revolt. And it's it, it case in point is Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy themselves. There is no unity. There can never be unity within those systems because there is no final court of appeals. There's no final head. And and when you don't have that, you get chaos. And you get splintering that continues on. Protestantism, I mean, it's clear, the splintering there. I mean, there's not 30,000 denominations, as, as some people have said. But there are way too many denominations. And they do disagree on the stupidest little things. And then in Eastern Orthodoxy, there's roughly 30 individual churches. And, you know, a good example right now is the churches in Russia and Ukraine. They're going in and out of schism with each other, with the, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, with the patriarch of Alexandria. They're, I mean, there's just... They haven't been able to have a true council, church council, since the Great Schism. They've had a couple that came close, but they've never been able to get everybody together. And so somebody, one of the 30 or so churches, always, always... Uh, like, at least one of them doesn't accept whatever council they end up having. Uh, recently in 2016, I think, they, maybe it was 2019, they had a council, um, first one in over 100 years, I believe, maybe 200 years, and the Russians didn't come, uh, so the Russians don't count it as a real council, which kind of was part of why there's all this drama now with Russia. The Russian Church, and Catholics have their own problems too. Catholics have their own problems too, but they have a way of defining what is true and bringing unity. 
And I think Catholics have a system that balances between uh, heresy and schism. And I don't think any other church organizational structure can do that. I don't. Thanks.